Hope you all are doing well. We are uh, in our last sermon in the series that we're doing called Doctrine. We'll start an Advent series next week where we'll be looking at kind of the coming of Christ over the next four weeks or so. But today's the last Sunday um, that we're doing Doctrine. Normally we kind of pick a book of the Bible and preach through it, which we'll be getting back to soon. But today um, we're finishing up this sermon series called Doctrine. Um, by doing a sermon on heaven and hell. So the, uh, the heaven and hell sermon quite, you know, is obviously um, quite serious. It's got a, uh, a nature to it that's um, maybe a little more, although the, all, all the doctrines we've, we've said uh, are gone through are serious, um, but as we've gone through the sermons themselves kind of in the, well, I would say 45 minutes, but I probably wouldn't be accurate. 55 minutes that we've been going through the sermons. Um, there's been kind of an ebb and flow of the way the deliveries happen. They've been at least attempted to be maybe more uh, lighthearted, trying to draw in, obviously, attention. You know, the more humor, the more you pay attention, the less humor, the more you're thinking about your grocery list. Um, and so there's kind of a, uh, an ebb and flow in the delivery. Um, but today, it's a little different. Because we're talking about heaven hell, there's going to be a little bit of a turn um, where there's, there's more, I guess, uh, more serious than, than lightheartedness throughout the entire time because it's heaven and hell. So just wanted to kind of let you know what was going on today. Uh, the way we're going to do this is, um, since we're talking about heaven and hell, we're going to talk about heaven for a little bit, the doctrinal beliefs of what a Christian holds about heaven, and then hell. And then lastly, you can open, if you want to, to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to be looking at a parable from there, because that, that parable is going to serve for us as an illustrative conclusion, um, an illustrating conclusion, if you will, to what we've talked about in regard to the doctrine of heaven and hell. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, we'll get into the sermon. So let's pray together. God, we thank you for another opportunity that we have to get together as a church body, to gather, to worship. I pray that as we look at this particular doctrine of heaven and hell, that the sober-mindedness that it calls for would be true of us, that we would really stop and reflect and contemplate the things that we're hearing and the urgency that it should create in our hearts and minds would happen. I pray for myself, God. I pray that you would help me preach accurately. I pray that you would help me be filled with the Spirit, that everything I say will be from you. Give me the proper range of emotion so that I can speak on this um, with the right level of thought and affections for you. I pray that you would do a, a mighty work in me as I think on the eternality of heaven and hell and that it would really shape and change the way I live and that it would sh shape and change the way we all live. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you talk about heaven and hell, the doctrine of heaven and hell, um, there accompanies this sermon a blood earnestness that comes with it. I mean, there's no way about it. Anytime you talk about the seriousness of hell and just how bad it will be and the greatness of heaven and how amazing it will be, there should always accompany a serious blood earnestness to the hearers and to the deliverer that this are not, these are not things that we can kind of 
kind of haphazardly talk about and go about our day. Um, why is this important? Why is the doctrine of heaven and hell important? Why, as Jack and I are laying out, uh, that's the other elder, 15 weeks or so of doctrine, why would we, as we're going through, want to end it with heaven and hell? Um, to maybe summarize it in a most concise fashion, uh, I think this verse helps us. John 10, verse 16, Jesus, looking at his disciples, says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Christ desires for other people that aren't yet Christians to become Christians, and they will hear his voice. So we know from Romans chapter 10 that the way that's going to happen, the, the only way, the plan A, the no other plan that it's going to happen is by him sending out his disciples because there are other sheep that are not yet part of this fold that Christ desires to be part of this fold, that he deeply desires to have them as children. He died for them on the cross and he's sending us, as it says in Romans 10, to be the beautiful feet that bring the good news. So the reason why the doctrine of heaven and hell is tremendously important is because Christ desires that sinners be saved and he has told us that it is our responsibility to go and hold out to them the gospel because eternality in heaven or eternality in hell is at stake for them. And it's, it's very serious. So, the reason why this is important is because sinners need to hear about Christ or they will perish forever. We do our best to uh, insulate ourselves from death. Um, every one of us is going to die. And we have mastered the art of keeping this reality away from ourselves, especially maybe in North America. Mark Driscoll writes this um, regarding this idea. He says, Our world doesn't know what to do with death. And I think he's more meaning North America. Certainly, I think most of other countries haven't insulated themselves quite like we have. Um, when people begin to die, we put them in a retirement home and care centers and hospitals. We tuck them away out of sight. We fill them with medications and try to make death seem not so deadly. When someone dies, we put them in a box so they don't have to stare death in the face. And if the box is open, we see the deceased with makeup and nice clothes so they don't appear as dead. And we've, we've mastered this art of completely insulating ourselves away from dead people. I mean, when's the last time you saw someone or around someone that was dead. Unless you're a coroner, it doesn't happen. We keep ourselves walled off from that completely because we don't want to face the reality, which is that we're all going to die. We're all going to die, and it's going to come for all of us a final judgment. For everyone, every person that's ever lived, will face the final judgment. And in the final judgment, there is either one of two states that await all of us, heaven or hell. And so what I want to do is try to open up for us and, and talk about some of the Christian beliefs from the scriptures. I'll give verses as, as they apply to what are some of the Christian beliefs on heaven and then what are some of the Christian beliefs and what does the Bible say regarding hell. And then we'll conclude from Luke chapter 16. The first thing is, um, that w when we talk about hell, Wayne Grudem defines heaven, I'm sorry, Wayne Grudem defines heaven as heaven is the place where God most fully makes known his presence to bless. So certainly we see and feel the presence of God in some respects here, but most fully it's in heaven and for the purpose of blessing us. 
Um, so some things to tell you about heaven. This, this is a list. I've got some numbers. These will not be on the screen. Just They'll eventually come on the screen. Um, whenever we get to my illustrative conclusion, I have decided to have nine notes when it comes to that. And so that's just, I can't help that. Um, but anyway, back to, uh, back to heaven. First thing that we need to talk about when we're talking about heaven is heaven is not a state of mind. Instead, it is a place. It's a real place. John 14, 2. I go to prepare a place for you. Really, that's room in a lot of, in a lot of places. It's not a mansion. Um, that's just King James. King James wanted to live in a mansion. And so he's like, you got to write mansion there because I'm a king and I only live in mansions. It's actually a room. I go to prepare a place for you, a room for you. God, God's got a room for you. He doesn't have a big house for you. Um, it's, just a, it's just a place. But anyway, the point that we're trying to make here is that it's an actual place where we're going to be with Christ we're not going to float around like some ghost. It's, it's not going to be a state of mind where we're in ultimate bliss. Instead, it's an actual location. And the best thing, the greatest thing about this location is not, I don't think it's helpful, the most helpful, I should say, to state the greatest thing in negative terms. In other words, by saying, the greatest thing is that there is not sin. The greatest thing is that there is not tears. We're just stating it negatively. I think it's more positive to say, uh, or more appropriate to, to state it positively. So it's not that it's no sin, no tears, no sickness, no fear, no etc. Um, but instead, the greatest thing about heaven, the, the way to state it positively is that the greatest thing is that we will get to be with Jesus Christ, our Savior. We will be with him forever. That's the best thing that it is. And we will be in a place physically with him. We will lay our eyes upon him and know that his presence is there. And as Wayne Grudem says, that it's there to bless us and we receive these blessings for, from him forever. So that's the first thing about heaven that's great. The next thing is, um, or the next thing I should say about heaven is that there's going to be one day in heaven a new heavens and new earth. We know from Romans chapter 8, Verse 21, that it says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. So just like man is sinful and we are corrupt and one day we'll be made redeemed, we'll be made new where we don't have sin and we're no longer slaves and to the bondage of decay. Creation, all of creation itself, every part of this that, that was broken from Genesis 3 when it fell, it will also be redeemed, just like mankind. So eight, Romans 8.21 says, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this, this place or this, this creation being itself set free is in the new heavens and the new earth. So when we talk about heaven, it's a physical place and it's also the place where Christ pr- keeps his promise in the gospel and redeems all of creation. So not, heaven will also be a, a new earth and new heavens. Uh, the next thing that we all also need to think about is this. We're going to have bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. So we're not going to, as I said, just kind of float up there in our soul forever and just kind of float around like a little ghost or something. Um, if we were to die right now and Christ hadn't come, our soul will be there and our bodies will go on the ground. But one day, whatever you believe about the second coming, you know, what, you know you're a rapture guy or not a rapture guy, whatever. Um, one day, our bodies will rise and our soul and they'll be put together and we will be united, soul and body together, forever in the new heavens and the new earth. We will all receive a new body, much like Christ's resurrected body. But all of us will have a new body. We won't float around. Uh, You may float through walls like Jesus did, but that would be cool. But anyway, um, the point is that we will have new bodies. 
We will eat and we will drink in these bodies, real bodies that can eat steak and say, this is amazing, or whatever we'll eat there. Taste wine and say, these flavors are amazing and we worship you, Jesus. We will actually, all of us, everyone will drink wine with Jesus in heaven. It says it in Luke twenty-two eighteen. We will drink G- wine with Jesus again, all of his disciples. It says it in Luke twenty-two eighteen. Don't know how you feel about alcohol right now, but one day you're going to drink wine with Jesus in the, in the end. I mean, that's, that's astounding that he says that, right? Luke twenty-two eighteen says that. Also, not only we have bodies in this new heaven, new earth, but there's gonna be a city. We're gonna live with him in this city, uh, we will carry on physical activities like music and the arts. Think about right now just how beautiful the music and the arts can be in this corrupt creation. But one day, when creation itself is liberated, the music and the arts will be unbelievably beautiful. I mean, we can't even put into words how perfect they will be. And we will be, with physical bodies, contributing in some senses to the work of the art and the music that will be there. I mean, this is astounding. This is absolutely astounding what will be there. The full extent of the excellence of all creation and all music and all arts will be on display in heaven. Driscoll says the heavenly city of Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and God will dwell with his people. We will always live as human persons with our spirits combined with resurrected physical bodies perfectly suited for this perfect place. This is the Edenic, or the Garden of Eden, project come to completion. So everything was perfect in the Garden of Eden, and it started in a garden, and everything was beautiful, and then creation happened, but it's going to start with a garden, and it's then going to end in a city where everything is again redeemed, and just as it was in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. So this is how the Hebrew story goes. Beginning, middle, back to the beginning. And so we will be with God forever in this beautiful city, of Jerusalem, Zion, or whatever you want to call it, where we will have physical bodies partaking in physical activities of some sort, which will all be perfectly performed as acts of worship, and they will will be done with the full extent of excellence that can be done. I mean, this is just unbelievable how beautiful heaven's going to be. Another thing is this. Throughout the Bible, we know this. Time will continue to exist. Once God created and he created time, time will always exist. But as we're in heaven where time exists, it will be unending. Finite creatures, you and I, who have beginnings but no ends, will enjoy Jesus forever. Time will not end. There will be seasons, surely. We know that in some ways. So when we sing the hymn, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It's absolutely true. What an amazing line to capture what it will be like there. Therefore, since we have these amazing promises that await us in heaven, we can just, I mean, we could go on and on with, with more things to say. Once we think about all that, it only makes right sense to say, if that's the case, if that's what heaven is like, then the only right thing I can think of, the only way to apply that, all the implications for the way I live my life right now are this, that any and all efforts of storing up treasures should only be directed or bent heavenward. Because it does not make sense for me to store up treasures here 
that will certainly perish comparatively to the treasures that can store up there which are infinite and beyond excellence. It's the only right implication and application we can make as we think on heaven. Now we're going to come in a little bit more as we get to this about how to think about storing up treasures in heaven versus storing up treasures here. So I'm going to save everything I'm going to say till we get to Luke chapter 16. But I think that we need to kind of put that out there, let it sit a little while, and you just, you just ponder that for a second. And we're going to turn to the doctrine of hell because we're going to come back to the idea of storing up treasures in heaven. And all of our treasures should be bent heavenward rather than here. Now, the doctrine of hell. Um, Jesus talks about the doctrine of hell more than anyone else in all of Scripture. No one talks about hell more than Jesus. And on top of that, of all the topics that Jesus talks about, now he just talks about it more than any person, but then if you take the content of all the things that he talks about, the con- when you look at that, he talks about hell more than any other topic that he talks about. He spoke of hell more than anything else there was. Why? Because he's mean because he wants us to feel bad? No. The only reason why is to highlight for us or to bring to bear on our minds the absolute necessity of realizing what awaits us forever. It's not like it's just some kind of bad summer vacation. It's forever. That will be our judgment, our right judgment from God that we will be there forever if we don't trust Christ. Wayne Grudem defines hell this way. Hell is a place of eternal, it means it does not end, conscious, we are completely aware, and that never stops, punishment. The full fury of the wrath of God is on us. The full fury of the wrath of God is on us, who are not in Christ, for the wicked. Hell is a place of eternal, conscious punishment for the wicked. Now, that's Grudem, right? You're saying, okay, Fudd, Wayne Grudem's not, you know, the Bible. Yes, he's not. So let's, let's look at some of the verses that the Bible uses then to discuss hell. We're just going to go through some of these. And as we're going through some of these, I want you to realize, I know that they're weighty. I know that they're very heavy in nature. But the reason why is that we're talking about them is for the same reason Jesus talks about them. He talks about them a lot. He talks about them often, more than any other thing, because he wants us to feel the weight of it. And it should shape, for those that are Christians, the way we live our lives. And for those that are not Christians, it should should, first of all, scare us for sure, but lead us to Christ, push us to say, we want Jesus then. So these are some of the, these are some of the verses, and I could list many, but these are some. Matthew twenty five thirty, the Bible describes hell as that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth eternally. Darkness is, is another term in Matthew twenty five thirty. The Bible describes hell as eternal punishment. Matthew twenty five forty six. Another one is unquenchable fire from Mark 9, 43. The unquenchable fire, um, the word they use is Gehenna. Gehenna refers to this area outside of the city of Jerusalem where there was much idolatry, where there was much um, sin, just horrendous sin, just disgusting sin. Things like child sacrifice, just 
terrible sin out on the outskirts of the city. And everybody that was Jewish in in the nation of Israel hated this area that was known as Gehenna outside of where all this idolatry and horrendous sin was practiced. It was so despised by Israel that they turned Gehenna into their trash dump where they take all their trash, all the feces was taken out there and all the dead bodies, they were stacked and they were burned. And there was so much always being brought out there that the fire itself would never ever go out because there was almost, and the things that it was burning was death and trash and feces and sin and all these horrendous things. And so the Israelites looked at that trash dump outside their city where all the horrific sin happened and it was termed Gehenna. And Jesus takes that and he says, the, the eternal flame that burns forever of all the terrible things that you know of, that's what hell is like. The unquenchable fire of Gehenna is what hell is like, but infinitely worse. When he talks about unquenchable fire, he's referring to Gehenna. The eternal fire from Matthew twenty five forty one. He he says that hell is anguish, Luke sixteen twenty four. It's a place of torment, Luke sixteen twenty eight. It's a place where there is the exclusion of God's presence. No, that's heaven, where God's presence is fully appreciated and known to bless. Hell is the exclusion of God's presence, Matthew 7, 23. Or maybe you could say it this way, if you want to be really, really theological, only the presence of the wrath of God. But certainly the exclusion of his presence to bless. It is also where the Bible says in Revelation 14, 19, where the great wine press, wine press of the wrath of God is. In other words, if you're going to make wine, you put a bunch of grapes in there and you step on them and the juice flows out and it goes into the vat and you have this. And so he says, in the same way, all the sinners that have willingly rebelled against God, they will feel the full fury of God where he stomps on the wine press of them and their blood comes out and fills the vat and it will happen forever. It's eternal conscious torment. This is the language the Bible used that he will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And it says this in, in Revelation 14, 11, and it says, and the smoke of those who are, being, who are feeling this, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It doesn't ever stop. It goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Revelation fourteen eleven. Eternal conscious punishment forever. So you might ask, why? Why is it eternal conscious torment forever? And they give two reasons. Number one, Grudem writes, when we think that doesn't sound fair, when we hear that, we say, well, that doesn't sound fair. Why would God go to such great lengths to punish us that way? He writes, we wrongly assume that we know the extent of the evil done when sinners rebel against God. We think sin's a small thing if we think that that is too much. We think sin's not a big deal. We wrongly assume that we understand the full extent of sin. The second thing is, we wrongly understand God's holiness. God is holy, perfectly and infinitely holy. And any sin that is done against an infinite and holy God, the punishment must match who he is or he's not God. Therefore, the punishment itself would be infinite. That's why. So we don't understand God's holiness, nor do we understand the extent of our sinfulness if we think that's too much. Because we have to remember this. We have to remember, in the end, if that's what happens, 
God is always righteous. He is never unrighteous and he never punishes unrighteously. And so in the end, this is what's right, although we don't like it. So another thing about hell, and I just want to clear up a misconception, the question of who reigns there? There was a book called Paradise Lost by Milton where there's a little line from it that says, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Obviously, that's horrifically wrong um, for many reasons, but it does create for us the idea that there's kind of this dualistic nature of heaven and hell, the yin-yang where they're equal in power and God can't overcome Satan and Satan can't overcome power and they have their little kingdoms over here where God reigns and everything's beautiful and artwork is great and hell's over here and Satan kind of has his little throne and his pitchfork and he's, he's, he's calling all the shots over here and that's not true at all. Who reigns in hell? Satan does not reign in hell. Satan has no say whatsoever in hell. The old saying of of Paradise Lost, where better to reign in hell than rule in Satan, is absolutely untrue. Hell is a place of punishment, not only for unbelievers, but also for Satan and all of the fallen angels. All of them, the rebels and the demons, will all taste the full fury of the wrath of God. When they're thrown all into the lake and fire at the end, they'll all be cast out, and they will all be tormented forever. Satan does not rule and reign there. He's not calling the shots. God's calling the shots. Hell is reserved for those who rebel against Christ forever. And it is not a place where Satan rules and reigns. So what are we to think of this doctrine then? What are we to think of the doctrine of hell? Yes, I know it's heavy and it's difficult and it should be difficult. It should be very difficult for us as we think about this doctrine today because our hearts should be moved desperately with deep anguish and sorrow for those that don't know Christ. There's no other way to feel besides deep anguish and sorrow. If we do not feel that, I would submit that we are deficient spiritually and emotionally if this doctrine doesn't move us and shake us to our core, at least in some ways. We must remember this. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure. God isn't wanting this. He takes no pleasure in giving his judgment and giving his wrath, nor should we. We would never take pleasure in this. And it's difficult for us. I think the hardest part, the reason why this doctrine is so hard is because as we think about the people around us that we, we love, I mean, we just love our fill-in-the-blank uncle, aunt, mom, dad, brother, sister, neighbor, roommate, and they don't know Christ. Like, we love them. I, I can't conceive. I can't conceive as we've talked about things, the beauty and the vastness of heaven and the horrific, infinite, awful nature of hell. I can't conceive of this person I love not wanting to go to heaven and instead willfully choosing hell because everyone willfully chooses it. No one's just sent there. Everyone willfully chooses it. I can't conceive that they would willfully choose this. So I want to do everything I can to communicate to them the understanding of the gospel so they would... They will see Christ as beautiful and understand all the glories that await us there and never choose this, ever. That's why this doctrine is so hard. Because we love people so deeply. And in the end, the eternal punishment, and I would submit righteous eternal punishment that would await them, terrifies us. 
it terrifies us. It terrifies me. So what do we do? We beg them to repent. This is a, uh, a document written by, it's called the Lausanne Covenant. It's more of a missionary document. Um, 27 evangelical leaders came in 1974 representing about 150 countries and they wrote this. All men and women are perishing because of sin. God loves everyone, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Yet those who reject Christ repudiate the joy of salvation and condemn themselves to eternal separation from God. They willfully choose it. To proclaim Jesus as the Savior of the world is not to affirm that all people are either automatically or ultimately saved. Because Christ is the Savior of the world, that doesn't mean that everyone just goes to heaven just like that. Something has to happen. Still less to affirm that all religions offer salvation in Christ. So there's only one way, which is Jesus. Rather, it is to proclaim God's love for a world of sinners. When you say Jesus is the Savior of the world, it's to proclaim God's love for a world, to the world of sinners and to invite everyone to respond to him as Savior and Lord. Therefore, we say you should have wholehearted personal commitment to Jesus and it should be demonstrated by repentance and faith. That's what's necessary. So what do we do for those that we know, those that we love? We plead, we beg, we say, please repent. Please come to Christ in faith. Christ Jesus has been exalted above every other name and we all long for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. And we want that those that we love would respond in repentance and faith. Now, there's a book. Actually, it's a sermon. Now it's a book um, written by Jonathan Edwards. It was preached by Jonathan Edwards. It may not have been written by him. Called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He is uh, the, on the forefront of American pastors. No no. Pa- no no pastor in America, he lived about a couple hundred years ago, uh, but no pastor in America has ever been um, the towering philosophical figure of Jonathan Edwards. There's no one that compares to him thus far, maybe one day. But um, he was also a pastor. So his writings are, they might as well be in Chinese. You can't read those things, they're insane. But his sermons were preached to the common man, filled with amazing illustrations of their need to turn to Christ. And the most famous sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he's holding out to those who, to, who don't know Christ, who are saying, I don't need Jesus right now. I don't care about the eternalities of hell. I can do whatever I want. And he, he's painting for them a picture. And so I, I thought it would be apropos to, to quote a little bit of this for us all, just in case there's anyone here who hears those things and says, it doesn't bother me right now. Listen to Edwards. This is coming behind the call of the Lausanne Covenant saying, repent, trust Christ. And this is why he says, there is, for those of you that aren't in Christ, there is nothing between you and hell except the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. You probably are not aware of this. For although you find your soul kept out of hell, you do not see the hand of God in it. You probably, instead, you attribute your current state of not being in hell to other things, such as the health of your body, your care for your own life, or the means you use for your own preservation. In other words, you eat organic and you lift weights and run 10Ks. Awesome. That doesn't mean anything. 
the air is holding you up, the mere pleasure of God is holding you up, and you can eat organic the rest of your life, and you can run 10Ks every month, and we're all proud of you, but that doesn't mean anything. This is what he says. But indeed, these things are nothing. These things are nothing. I'm not saying don't do it. All Christians, take care of your bodies. But they are not what keeps you from hell. If God should withdraw his hand, they would avail no more to keep you from falling than the air can hold up a person who is suspended in it. Your wickedness makes you as heavy as lead. Your righteousness has no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web has to stop a falling rock. It'll fly straight through. And so we can't bank on how healthy we are, or whatever it is we think that keeps us out of hell. The mere pleasure, the good pleasure of God is upholding us. For those that aren't Christians, it's upholding you right now. And all it takes is his moving of his hand, and you will descend into the depths forever. Therefore, don't miss this call today. Repent. Trust Christ alone for your salvation. He gave his life for you. He died the death that you should have died. You, you, could not have with, you could not have taken the full wrath of God. He took it for you. And then he rose again, showing that he defeated Satan, sin, and death. So if you trust Christ, that he died for you on your behalf, and repent of your, of your sins, and ask Christ to now save you, and put yourself on a path of li- living for him forever, you are saved. You have then been, as Colossians 1 says, transferred from the dominion of darkness, and all of its awfulness, into the kingdom of his son where Christ is and all the infinite glories are. Trust Christ. So, Luke 16, as our illustrative conclusion, as we think on heaven and hell, I think that this particular parable really holds up for us some of the great applications that we need to take. So, why pick this text? Why pick Luke 16, 19 through 31, that's a parable. So it's not a true story. This, this did not happen. There's not really a rich man and really a man named Lazarus that are looking up there and it's like, hey, water. And that didn't happen. Um, so why pick this text? A few reasons. The first one is that it is a picture given to us in the gospel straight from the mouth of Christ that talk about heaven and hell. It, it's not, the, the main teaching per se is not directed towards talking about heaven and hell. It's about money, but it does talk about heaven and hell and gives us direct applications that can be made in light of the mentionings of heaven and hell. The next reason is this. Um, This text of scripture, we'll see towards the end, actually brings us full circle back to the very first doctrine, which was the doctrine of the word, and shows us just how central and important the doctrine of the word is in our life. So I like that. That's just a kind of a bonus. Um, the other one is obviously, as I said, there are direct applications for us. I mean, very direct applications. You think, what's the application to the doctrine of heaven and hell? Oh, I don't know. Oh, thanks, Luke 16, because <laughs> I didn't know. You have some for me. Perfect. Thank you. So there are direct applications from this that we can talk about. And they're going to be, as I've already kind of hinted to, I said, store that away in your mind. We're going to come back to it. The only right thing as we think on the beauties and perfections and the eternal, eternal nature of heaven versus this world versus the awfulness of hell. Here we are. If you're a Christian, you're on the pathway towards heaven. The only right thing then is to bend all of your storing up of treasures towards heaven instead of this world. 
And we're going to see that kind of illustrated for us here. So some notes here in Luke 16. You can look at verse 19. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed. Let's just stop this. What's going on here? This is just a parable, but, but Jesus is telling the story and he wants to get the character. So he's going to give us the characters here. It'll, uh, these notes should be on the screen. Um, verse 19, this is the introduction to the two characters. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with whatever fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked the poor man, Lazarus, licked his sores. So the first note is this, introduction of characters. And I want you to notice something. We're talking about heaven and hell, but when Jesus is going to, throughout this parable, kind of contrast and compare heaven and hell for us, he's putting it in the conversation of financial status. Like, I didn't say, oh, I want to talk about money. Let's, let's, Jesus, as he's talking about this, in this parable of heaven and hell, decides to give it to us in the comparison and contrast of financial status. You've got rich man and you've got Lazarus. You've got somebody poor and you've got somebody, somebody rich and somebody poor. So we just need to take note of that because I think it has direct implications for us as we think about heaven and hell. So let's just ask this one question. When you read the two descriptions of those two people, you think, oh, well, I'm not like either one of those. Which one are you more like? The rich man who can wear what he wants and eat sumptuously whenever he wants and could probably supply food to people that don't have food or like the poor man who has to depend on food from anyone and has sores all over his body. Which one are you more like? The next one is this. Let's keep going. Verse 21. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, so he found himself in Hades being in torment. So we need to stop. We need to remember this is just a parable. And so as it's a parable, Jesus is, um, has a main point that he's going to get to towards the end. So he's not going to talk about why one goes to heaven and one goes to hell. He's just going to say the rich man died and went to Hades. The poor man died and went to heaven. And so we have to back ourselves up and do the good Bible study work of realizing the way people go to heaven and hell is told to us already in, the, in, in Scripture. So in this parable, there's an assumption that the poor man trusted Christ, knew God, followed after God, and all those things. The rich man did not. The rich man went at his own way. He decided to live his own life and not trust Christ. So just back up. Remember, it's a parable. He's not going to get into those kind of details in this parable. So keep that in your mind. But we do know this. As we read this, it says, The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom, if you will. Um, those, that was the place where Israelites said, That's heaven, Abraham's bosom. And the people who were Jewish in Israel, they said, Hades, that is not heaven, that's, that's hell. Um, and so you keep going, it says, And in Hades, being in torment. So let's stop right here. Commentators went a little crazy on the word Hades, and they're kind of saying, This isn't hell, this is, you need to understand this is kind of the intermediary place, yada, 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 yada. I don't think that's the case. Because... The words right after Hades seem to describe well, how the Bible talks about hell, where it says, and in Hades, comma, being in torment. That's how the Bible talks about hell. So I think Jesus in this parable is talking about hell, not some intermediary holding place. So there is no purgatory, argument for purgatory, or anything like that. It's hell. It's heaven, Abraham's bosom, hell, Hades, place of torment. And they go there. And notice this. This is the second thing I want you to see here. Is 
Um, th- both of these men are Israelites. And it says, <clears throat> being in Hades and in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. And he called out, Father Abraham. He didn't sing the song. Um, but he said, Father Abraham. So what we know from that is this. This man who is rich, who is in hell, is still saying, I'm a Jew, you're Father Abraham. You're a Jew, I'm, your, I'm in your line. Therefore, because I'm in your line, because I'm a Jewish person, I'm supposed to be up there. I'm calling you Father. Therefore, I really believe that because I'm in your line of this religiosity called Israel or Jewishness, that I'm supposed to be up there. That's why I'm calling you Father. Aren't I supposed to be up there? So the second note that we can get here is this. Jewishness does not save the man. For us, religion does not save. Keeping laws does not save. We are commanded to keep the laws of God as a response of being saved. But if we think that just because we follow the rules, that that's what's going to get us to heaven, that is not what gets us to heaven. Only faith in Christ does. As John the Baptist told the Israelites in the very beginning of his ministry, in Matthew 3, 8, he looked at him and he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so we know that fruit will follow those who are truly following Christ. No fruit, no heaven. But let's go back up one verse because I want to point something else out to you. It says there in verse 23, and in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. I want, I want to stop there and kind of clear up something. This is a parable. I've said that a thousand times now. I'll stop. Um, but we need to realize that because this is a parable, uh, there's something that needs to be shown. Number three is this. You can go ahead and put it up. That there is no reprieve of suffering for anyone in hell. There's no reprieve. In this, it seems to kind of say, well, here he is. He's able to kind of, you know, it's like a glass floor and there's the people and oh, my friend's there and there's Lazarus. Hey, Lazarus, got a question. This does not exist. There's not one person in hell that for a moment gets to view into heaven. There's no reprieve from the suffering in hell. It is forever. It is eternal. It is conscious. And it is, there's not one sliver of reprieve. That would, that would lessen the severity of hell if they could even look and see friends or loved ones that might be there. And that does not exist. All right. Continuing on in verse 24, it says, He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip. Listen to the, the extreme nature of the suffering that he has. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger. Lazarus, Mr. Sowers, dip the, his end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Just the amazing nature of how awful it is. And then verse 25 says, But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime received your good things. You, in your lifetime, received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. And now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Now, we don't need to get confused there. It's not, God is not saying, so if your life is good, you go to hell on earth, and if your life is bad, you go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what he's saying is this, that the consequences of the life that you live, sin's consequences are deserved. So remember, this is a parable. He's not going into everything. We have to look at the rest of the scriptures. But what we can take from verse 25 is, the reason why you're there 
rich man, is because sin's consequences have been given to you, and those are deserved. So the fourth one um, is sin's consequences, which is hell, are deserved. No one is sent to hell unrighteously by God. No one. You can keep going. And in verse 25, it says, Child, remember that in a lifetime you're in anguish. 26, and besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. That's a key word. Great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to here. In other words, there's this great divide between heaven and hell, and there's never ever going to be people after the afterlife to be able to cross over from hell up into heaven. There's this great chasm. So the main point that we can see from verse 26 is this. In regard to heaven and hell, death is utterly final. It's utterly final. There is no mulligan. There's no redo. There's no second chance. Once we die, it's all over. We will not get a repeat. There was a book written a couple years ago by a decently known American pastor. I disagree with the book completely and utterly. Where he said... In the book, he argues that in the very end, even after death, that God will come to those who have not put their faith in him or believed in him. He uses kind of more nebulous terms like believe in him instead of saying trusting Christ's death on the cross. He'll come and he'll just woo them. He'll just woo them with his love. This is the fluffy language he uses. And even after they're dead and they're supposed to be in hell forever, God comes and woos them with his love. And that love will eventually win them over and they will all... Everyone, everyone will eventually go to heaven. This is universalism. This is everyone goes to heaven, even after the afterlife. And the, the great chasm that no one will ever cross shows us that death is utterly final. We get one life. That's it. That's all we have. As C.T. Studd says, one life, only one life, will, t- will, t- will soon be passed Only what's done for Christ will last. The bed we make in this life, we will sleep in forever. This does not mean, by the way, that you think you can maybe buy yourself a spot in heaven. That's not what he's saying. That you can just kind of, hey, I want that beachfront property up there. How much does it cost? In other words, it's saying, um, what's done is that if you've put your faith in Christ, and you live a life that shows that Jesus is your highest treasure, you demonstrate that you were regenerate. You demonstrate that you are in Christ. So the next one is this. Um, Go to verse 27, and he says, so there's this great divide, no one can cross. And then he said, then I beg you. The rich man says, then I beg you, Father. Remember, this is all just a parable. This isn't really able to happen, but there's something we can learn from this. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. One of the key characteristics of God that's been demonstrated to us throughout all of Scripture is that God is a sending God. The missio Dei, the mission of God, is that Christ came to save sinners. And in John 20, 21, he says to, Jesus says to his disciples, so the Father has sent me, so I send you. There's it's over and over and over that Christ is telling us, Acts 1-8, Matthew 28-20, sin, I'm sending you, go. There's people out there that don't know Christ. I want you to go, sin, sin. So there's a common grace that's being shown here that Jesus is trying to demonstrate to us that this, this man, I know it's a story, but this man is picking up and saying where he says, oh, 
Well, if that's impossible for me to come back, then I beg you, send him. Send somebody. Because you're ascending God. Send somebody. I've got five brothers that do not know Christ. And you can see the, the urgent language that he uses where he says in verse 27, he says, I beg you. And in verse 28, he says, warn them. You gotta go tell them. Send somebody. There's an urgency that should be created in all of us. So we see that in verse 27 and 28. Here's the sixth note, is that evangelism in this life is absolutely crucial. Beg you, warn them, thus creating for us a huge urgency as we think on all these things that we've learned about heaven and hell. There should be within us a deep bubbling up of urgency that says, I can't keep going at the same way I'm going if I'm not living with urgency. I can't put it off till next year, an urgency. This should create something right now. Verse 29. But Abraham said, I mean, this is, this is astounding. Back to our very first thing that we said. But Abraham said, I'm not going to go, basically is what he says, because the reason why I'm not going to go is they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible, is what he basically says. There's a Bible. I wrote this book. It's called the Bible. The Holy Scriptures, the Torah. They have that. Since they have that, that's good. I mean, they don't need someone to, to be sent right now because they have the Bible. And the Bible in and of itself is sufficient to lead people to salvation. We know that people must come and tell them, but they use the Bible when they do it. And so he says um, in verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. So the seventh thing here is that we see Jesus placing a high value on Scripture. This brings us right back to the very beginning that we talked about, that there, we have to uphold this high value. We need to realize that Scripture is completely sufficient. It's not like any other book. You can read whatever one, maybe I'll read a bunch of uh, novels or a bunch of theology books or whatever it is you read. When you read those things, you know, you read it, that's kind of stuff, that you, that's good. But when you read this, it's different. Something different happens when you read this book compared to any other book in the world. No other book that's ever been written is like this. When you read this, God himself is therefore speaking to you. That doesn't happen when you read Harry Potter or systematic theology. Only when you read this book is the Holy Spirit therefore taking. He's directly speaking to you because these are God's words. And as it says in John 14 and John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit is guiding us into truth, teaching us. He's convicting us of our sin. He's doing all kinds of things as we read this. And so Jesus is reiterating this high value that we should have on Scripture. Now, the reason why I say that is because that leads us right into the next, next thing. Notice this right here. Because Jesus says, or Abraham, I should say, says they have, they have the, the, the prophets and they have the, uh, how does he say it? They have the Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. That's what they need. They have that. So they're good. And then we hear him say, no. Someone who's Jewish says, the Bible itself didn't work on me. And therefore, I know my five brothers. I know that they already know the Moses and the prophets, and it's not going to work on them either. They're in the same boat as I am. When they think about the world and its pleasures, they already have come to the conclusion that we are supposed to be rich men who are clothed in purple with fine linen. We're supposed to feast sumptuously every day. And if we have a little bit of compassion on Lazarus, we'll throw some stuff out there and release the dogs and let them lick their sores. But that's it. 
God wants us rich. No question about it. That's how I read the Bible, and that's how they read the Bible. So he says, no. So that leads us to this next thing. As we read Scripture, and we believe in its sufficiency, there's something else that must happen. We can't just read it like an academic book and say, I got that down. What book is next? We have to fully submit ourselves to it. We have to. When we read Scripture, we in turn allow Scripture to read us and show us what's wrong. And therefore, we live under the book. And we say, whatever you say, I am under your authority. I don't make the authority here. I'm not in charge of you. I don't call the shots. You're in in charge. I am under your authority, and you call the shots. I am in full submission of what you want. So, number seven, Jesus places a high value on Scripture. We need to believe it's sufficient. But number eight is this. Therefore, Full submission to the word must be demonstrated in order to show that real regeneration has happened. Full submission to the word. What it says, you do it. What it says not do, you don't do it. And that doesn't earn you a right standing. Instead, because you already are a child, you're a daughter, you're a son, and the beautiful glories of heaven await you, You want to do the things that it says. You want to fully submit to it. Why wouldn't you want to fully submit to it? That makes the most sense. Of course I want to. He saved my soul. I'll do whatever he wants. I don't want to store up treasures on earth. I want to store up treasures in heaven. So full submission here. That's why when we see no, we realize that it is possible to know the scriptures and yet not be shaped by them at all. That's why he begs. For people to go. He thinks that someone needs to go because he knows that they won't submit themselves to the scriptures. So the application for us then is that we are to fully submit ourselves to the text of scripture and let it shape our eternal destiny because it could be that our eternal destiny is at stake if we don't. We're not demonstrating repentance and faith. We're not demonstrating regeneration. We're not, as old JTB says, John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 8, bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. Then we're, we're kidding ourselves. We're just running through the world thinking that we're fine. L- let me read, I think, um, one of the best applications. It's in Matthew chapter 6. When we're thinking about heaven and hell and storing up, this is a very familiar text from the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. And the last line is key. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So the doctrine of heaven and hell certainly informs, I think, materialism. I don't know any other way. I mean, it just... This is what Jesus is, as he's talking about it, the, the characters he chooses to talk about this parable with are people that are rich and people that aren't. And then, verse 31 is probably the most stunning verse in the entire parable. Stunning. Now let's remember, let's get our bearings here. Luke, after the resurrection, maybe 30 years or so, 40 maybe, wrote this, wrote this letter, and he's looking back and he's saying, resurrection of Jesus happened. And then he's remembering as he's, well, he wasn't present, but he's hearing all the stories about how this happened. And so he's thinking, 
Oh, he said that, resurrection. Oh, this is, that's stunning. Look at verse 31, how, how it says. And he says to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, in that particular story, Jesus is telling the story and he's saying, someone w- could rise from the dead. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't even believe that someone rise from the dead. Luke's looking back and he's like, oh, rise from the dead. I get what you're saying. So all of your impulses when you read this are like, that hasn't happened. Is Jesus talking about himself? Yes, he is. He's absolutely talking about himself. Therefore, what, when we read this, Luke wants you to think about Jesus being raised from the death, re- raised from the dead. That's what makes this statement so stunning. He's saying if someone is so in love with money that he fought, finds himself deaf to the commands of God and the warnings and the promises of Moses and the prophets from the Old Testament, then even a resurrection from the dead, specifically Jesus' unbelievable resurrection from the dead that's been recounted now for 2,000 years that shapes everything about history, even that thing itself will not bring about repentance in this man's heart. (laughs) Astounding. Just simply astounding. So the ninth thing is this. The love of money. I put will. You could put could. I know that's more fair will keep you from knowing Jesus. I think that's, there's enough warnings from 1 Timothy 6 and the Gospels that can tell us that. The reason why we talk about heaven and hell because it has direct implications on the way we live our lives, whether we're going to store up treasures in heaven or here. I don't think it's any coincidence that we're about to go into the most materialistic month in North America, maybe the world, as we hear this. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, don't give your family anything for Christmas. Say, kids, we're just going to hate Christmas from now on because you're too, you know, materialistic. And I'm not saying that. Um, but I am saying this. As we're going into, as we're going into the most materialistic season that is, that is in North America, and really, your entire life. I mean, we're so, so, maybe embarrassingly addicted to some of the things, right? Practice this. Let's let the applications, the real life teachings on heaven and hell have practical applications right now on our lives. Let's say, I'm not going to let the love of money shape me next month or the rest of my life. Instead, I'm going to practice with great abandon, with great abandon, storing up all my treasures heavenward instead of here. I'm going to learn to, as I go through my seasons of life, and I get into my 20s, and I get into my 30s, and I get into my 40s, learn to hold more and more things loosely, letting go of any pleasures that this world might have that might entice me to like it more than Jesus. I'm not saying you can't enjoy things here. I'm saying I'm not going to enjoy them th- those things if they entice me into loving them more than Jesus. Because, I mean, this is such a short distance of life here comparatively to all of creation. I mean, to all of eternity. So why would I not then bank everything on that where infinite excellence and glories will be? The doctrine of heaven and hell have massive implications right now on our materialism, among many other things. Evangelism, (laughs) there's, there's tons. 
So as long as Jesus Christ came and embodied radical freedom from the love of things and serving us, he embodied the nature of not living like a materialistic person. He didn't own anything. He maybe owned his dad's hammer at one place. He didn't have a bed, he didn't have a pillow. He had some clothes. That was it. And he embodied a, a, a deep um, disdain, if you will, for materialism, but also embodied being a servant. He literally served us by giving his very life for us so that we might come to know Christ. There's at least two applications, addressing our materialism and addressing our need to serve others through evangelism. As long as Christ embodies those things, then those that get their joy from material things and not doing evangelism rather than loving will not be able to, I think, fully receive Christ for who he is and possibly may keep you from knowing Christ. So as we hear this, um, we shouldn't say this. Um, well, let me read John Piper and then I'll, quote, I'll, I'll close. He says this, If we use our money to fatten our cushions instead of seeking every way possible to invest in the hope of others so that they may know Christ, then we will go to the place of torment. And if our love of money and things is so deep that the writings of Moses and the prophets of God do not change our values, then we will not be changed even if Jesus Christ should rise from the dead. We will not receive him for who he really is. So we can't say, yeah, I'm saved and I'm good. I can do whatever I want. I got that part down. Instead, we submit ourselves completely to these two doctrines and saying, the only things I'm going to store up are treasures in heaven. I will not pursue materialism and I will urgently engage in evangelism. I'm going to pray and as I pray, we've got some space here for you. Space meaning literal time. We've got a few songs where you can sit, think, pray, respond, however you want to, stand and sing, however the Spirit's leading. There's freedom in this room to do that. We want you to know that if you don't know Christ, trust Christ, believe in Jesus, come talk to me. I'll be right here. If you do know Christ, however he's leading you right now, respond. You just need to sit and think and pray for a while. Read your scriptures. Let the Lord speak to you. That's fine. And then stand and sing and worship him. However the Holy Spirit has wired you, I would ask that you would be obedient to that. If you need to pray for anything, about anything, please come talk to me. I'd love to have an opportunity to pray for you and with you. Or maybe the person you came with is more comfortable. That's fine. Pray with them. I'm going to pray and Ben will lead us in a time of worship through song. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us. And because of it, we can know you. We can know the great blessings of all the eternal nature of knowing you forever in heaven. And we can also know for those that don't know you what awaits them. And therefore, we don't, we don't take that with a happy posture whatsoever. Instead, it all the more makes us urgent in our evangelism. We trust you. We love you. We know that you're fully righteous and fully good. And we beg you, 
to fill us with the Spirit so that we can live a life that shows that Jesus is our highest treasure by calling people to Christ. Be with us now as we worship and respond. I pray that it would be Holy Spirit filled. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.